This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In this episode of Conspiracy Theories, we're going to talk about some fairly controversial ideas surrounding major tenets of Christian belief. Please note that we are not expressing a belief or disbelief in any of these theories. We are merely discussing them objectively. It's an early morning in the summer of 1885. Berenger Saunier, a young French priest, oversees a group of laborers repairing his old, dilapidated church. The workers take turns swinging pickaxes at the centuries-old stone slab of the altar, ripping it from the supporting pillars. One of them misses the slab and buries his pick in the pillar. The priest yelps and hurries over to survey the damage. Somehow, the pick has blasted a hole clean through the thick column. As the debris is cleared, Saunier discovers the pillar was hollow. He hesitantly reaches inside. First, he pulls out a clump of dried ferns. If they dated to the construction of the pillars, they could have been up to a thousand years old. Then, as he continues to feel around, he finds something else, something that shouldn't be there. It's an old scroll written in Latin. He finds a second one soon after. Why would they be hidden in an old altar? Sonier glances over the parchment and his eyes grow wide. Without further explanation, he dismisses the laborers. 
He takes the scrolls to his private quarters and never allows another soul to see them. Whatever was on those scrolls changed his life forever. Soon after he disappeared into his room with the parchments, Sonier became rich beyond his wildest dreams. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Today, we're talking about the Holy Grail and the Priory of Sion. Last week, we examined the evidence suggesting that Jesus Christ was secretly married to Mary Magdalene and that the two had a child together, which was the true Holy Grail. We also talked about the Knights Templar and their potential role in protecting Jesus's bloodline. Today, we'll be diving into the conspiracy theory that a secret society called the Priory of Sion is responsible for protecting the secret of Jesus's descendants. We'll determine if they work in conjunction with the Knights Templar to protect the Holy Grail, and whether evidence of their existence has ever been uncovered. We'll also briefly touch on some other more out there theories concerning Jesus's bloodline, extraterrestrials, and the true origins of Adam and Eve. But before we dive into that, let's talk about the Priory of Sion. Proponents of our main conspiracy theory assert the Priory of Sion was a church order, similar to the Knights Templar, but was founded at least 20 years earlier. According to different sources, the Priory was either founded in 1090 or 1099 CE. Jerusalem was captured in the year 1099 as part of the First Crusade. This theory suggests the founding of the Priory of Sion is directly tied to a secret discovery made by the First Crusading Army in Jerusalem. The primary source for these founding dates is the Dossier Secret d'Henri Lobineau, or the Secret Files of Henri Lobineau. This is a group of documents totaling 27 pages that was found in the National Library of France in 1967. The dossier hints at more than just the founding of the Priory. It also suggests the Priory was heavily involved in the creation of the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar were allegedly formed to be a financial arm of the Priory of Sion. The fact that the Priory is associated with one of the most enigmatic church orders in Catholic history makes their function all the more mysterious. 
especially since the exact purpose of the Priory of Sion is never made clear in the documents. They were not established to fight in the Crusades or to protect the roads around Jerusalem like the Templars. Yet, they were inextricably linked to the Templars' early history. One of the most incredible documents in the dossier is a list of Grand Masters of the Priory of Sion. It shows that for over 100 years, until 1188, Priory of Sion and the Knights Templar shared the same leaders. The list does conflict with the historically accepted list of Grand Masters of the Knights Templar, but it wouldn't be shocking if that list was incomplete. Almost all Templar documents were destroyed when the order was crushed in 1307. The historically accepted list of masters was created by finding references to the Templar hierarchy in unofficial documents and the personal letters of Templar knights. As such, it's possible dates have been confused or misinterpreted. If the modern list is incomplete and the Priory of Sion actually did share leadership with the Knights Templar, they must have cooperated towards some goal. The Knights could have served as the public face of the Priory, while its members worked in the shadows for a second purpose. That goal, according to the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which popularized the Holy Grail conspiracy in the United Kingdom in 1982, was to protect the Holy Bloodline. As evidence, they examined documents in the dossier which imply the Priory of Sion had a particular interest in the Merovingian dynasty, a family which ruled France from the 5th century to the middle of the 8th century. Holy Blood, Holy Grail argues that the Merovingian dynasty was actually descended from Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. There's not a lot of evidence for these claims aside from speculation, but it does fit with what we know about the order. If it was established to protect the Merovingians, it makes sense why the dossier included a detailed genealogy of the family down to the present day. It also explains how the organization was so powerful. If they were responsible for protecting something as important as the true Holy Grail, then it is possible the Order would have had the power to autonomously create the Knights Templar. In retrospect, it's difficult to see how the Knights Templar obtained church endorsement and grew to be so powerful without help from an organization like the Priory of Sion. Still, the Knights Templar continued to grow even without the support of the Priory. According to the dossier, the two groups split following an unspecified feud in 1188. Other documents even suggest the Priory of Sion had a hand in the Templars' collapse in 1307. But the theory holds that the Templars protected the Holy Grail, Jesus' descendants, just like the Priory of Sion. So there's no clear reason for the two societies to be enemies. According to Holy Blood, Holy Grail, the Priory of Sion may have felt the Templars were doing a poor job of guarding the Grail. Maybe the Templars really had become an unpredictable cult which worshipped ancient relics. If all that mattered to the Priory of Sion was protecting the Holy Grail, it's possible they would have collaborated with the Church to get rid of the Templars when they became ineffective. 
As we discussed in the previous episode, the writing was definitely on the wall to indicate the Templars were going to be destroyed by October of 1307. King Philip IV arrested and tortured as many knights as possible on Friday the 13th, a date which would go down in history and spawn more than one superstition. The day is definitely a momentous one in our conspiracy theory. If the Priory of Sion hypothetically knew the Templars would be destroyed, they may have assisted the church as double agents. Then, they could seize control of important relics and secret them away before the Vatican found out. This is precisely what some believers in the Priory of Sion argue. Documents from the time of the Inquisition state that one of the men who collected the treasures of the Knights Templar in Paris was Guillaume de Gisot. De Gisot is also supposed to be the Grand Master of the Priory of Sion. But the only documents we have which suggest such a connection were in the dossier found in the National Library of France in 1967. No other historical reference from the time suggests De Gizo was involved with the church at all. Still, as we discussed in the last episode, there are reasons to suspect the Knights Templar of hiding something. The way the order rapidly ascended to power and wealth only to disappear just as quickly invites suspicion. And their legendary connection to the Holy Grail is unusual. If they really did protect such a treasure, as the stories suggest, then that means they must have secretly collaborated with the Priory of Sion. The Templars are the subjects of endless conspiracy theories in their own right. If the only reason to connect them to the Priory of Sion is that they're both suspicious, that's not exactly a solid foundation for a theory. As far as the Templars' connection to the Holy Grail, the only proof of that is found in Arthurian fiction, like the stories of Potzival and Perlevo from the 13th century. There are also rumors that swirled about the Order's occult practices around the time of its collapse. Well, there are undoubtedly some holes in the theory that the Templars cooperated with the Priory of Sion, and some of the supposed connections are speculative but I wouldn't discount it just yet. The Templars are not the only mysterious figures which could be a part of the conspiracy. For that, we turn to the story of Beranger Saunier, an 18th century French priest. Saunier is famous for going from abject poverty to fabulous wealth, seemingly overnight. Some believe he discovered treasure, but was it gold? Or was it something else? Could he have found evidence of the Holy Grail and the Priory of Sion? Coming up, we investigate the story of the treasure of Saunier. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. 
So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. So far, our investigation into the Priory of Sion and their legendary protection of Jesus' descendants, the true Holy Grail, has been fraught with speculation. But though the circumstances of the Secret Order's founding are murky, there could still be evidence that the organization has existed throughout the centuries. The key to understanding the modern Priory of Sion may lie in the story of an obscure French priest named Berenger Saunier. Saunier was born in 1852 in Montezelle, France. He was a pious boy and entered the seminary at Carcassonne at the age of 22. In 1879, he was ordained as a priest, and six years later, in 1885, he was assigned to the small parish of Rennes-le-Chateau. Fewer than 300 people lived in the town, and the church did not have much money. Saunier's salary was small, and he subsisted eating what he could hunt and fish for himself. Despite his lack of funds, Saunier wanted to undertake massive renovations on the old, crumbling church as soon as possible. Saunier secured a small loan from the town's mayor and solicited as many donations as he could to improve the church. He decided to begin work on the rundown altar first. The altar was possibly over 1,000 years old. It was described by local historian Rene Descadias as a crude altar made of a stone slab supported in front by two square pillars, one of which bore archaic carvings. The pillar with the carvings was purported to be an old Visigothic column that had been repurposed to hold up the altar. The Visigoths were Germanic tribes which warred with Rome from the 5th to the 8th century. In the 5th century, Rennes-le-Chateau is suspected to have been the site of a large Visigoth city. But whether or not the altar support truly was from the 5th century, it was definitely at least hundreds of years old. Saunier began remodeling the altar with a small group of laborers. One of them accidentally struck the column with a pickaxe, breaking a hole in it. As it turned out, the column was hollow. Inside were a clump of dried ferns and two small ancient scrolls. Witnesses at the time agree on these events. It's virtually certain that Saunier found some kind of ancient scrolls written in Latin. Descadia speculated they were rather mundane instructions placed by the stonemasons to explain the construction of the altar and its pillars, but this cannot be confirmed. Conspiracy theorists believe they may have contained secret information about the Priory of Sion and the true Holy Grail. Whatever their true contents were, Saunier translated them quickly. 
The historian Desca Diaz claimed that the priest gave a copy of the translation to the mayor, but neither the original scrolls nor the translated copies have ever been found. According to the sister of Sonier's maid, the priest found more than just scrolls during the renovations. He also found some quantity of gold under the church. This gold was purportedly the nest egg of the previous priest, Antoine Bigou. He died at the age of 70 and is believed to have buried his life's savings before he passed away. This is a possibility, but Descadias acknowledges it's only a guess. We do not know how much gold Sonier unearthed or who buried it there in the first place. The only thing we can be relatively sure of is that he discovered some mysterious parchments. Whatever he found, it encouraged him to keep digging. After he finished with the altar, he began remodeling the small cemetery attached to the church. Despite his supposed golden windfall, Sonier dismissed the few laborers who had been working for him and undertook the excavations himself. Suspicious behavior to say the least, and apparently his work in the cemetery was not performed with the greatest care. The inhabitants of the village worried their ancestors' graves were not being treated with respect. They sent the priest a letter in March of 1895 complaining about his conduct in digging around the cemetery. Sonier ignored his congregation's complaints. It seems he prioritized either his grand renovations or his mysterious treasure hunt over the petty concerns of his flock. During the next few years, he took frequent trips to Paris and the countryside. Around the same time, the volume of his letters increased exponentially. Soon, he was receiving up to 150 letters every day, many of them containing small money orders between 10 and 100 francs. It's not known for sure who he was corresponding with or why he took so many trips out of town. Well, some believe Saunier found something in the ancient parchments, which brought him into contact with rich and powerful people. Adherents of the Priory of Sion conspiracy believe Saunier found evidence of the society's existence and was paid to keep quiet. Whether or not his activity was related to the Priory of Sion, it's likely he was writing to some wealthy individuals. From 1895 to 1900, he continued repairing the church and somehow paid back the loan from the mayor. But the remodel didn't stop there. Saunier set his sights on the area around the church and bought up large swaths of land with a seemingly inexhaustible bank account. On the new land, he built a massive villa and an ornate garden. Then came a tower and a conservatory. When it was done, Saunier had constructed a massive religious and entertainment complex and had spent the modern equivalent of at least $1.9 million on repairs alone. He spent much more than that on a new, lavish lifestyle. The priest's behavior grew to be just as confusing as the source of his wealth. He started hosting fancy guests nearly weekly to relax in the new luxurious villa. Village gossip contended that he even made friends with celebrities of the day, including the opera star Emma Calvet. Calvet, however, never publicly mentioned Saunier, so there's no evidence this claim has any truth to it. 
Regardless, his lifestyle encouraged suspicion. Gossipers in Rennes-le-Chateau weren't the only ones who were suspicious of the priest's new standard of living. A new bishop, Monsignor Beausejoux, was appointed to Saunier's diocese in 1902. He was as perplexed as everyone else regarding the extravagant remodels and enormous wine budget. Beausejoux summoned Saunier to explain his finances multiple times over the next decade. Each time, Saunier ignored the bishop's request or else stated that his fortune was legitimate without elaborating. Eventually, the bishop asked Saunier to move to another parish, but Saunier refused. After all the work he had put into the little village, he wasn't going to leave quietly. By that time, the bishop was through being patient. He called Saunier to ecclesiastical court in 1910. When Saunier refused to show, he was convicted of fraud in his absence. At this time, some believe the bishop discovered Saunier was consorting with the Priory of Sion and punished him for it. As a result, Saunier was forbidden by the Catholic Church to give mass. Left with no source of income, Saunier tried to sell some of his property in Rennes-le-Chateau, but nobody wanted an opulent villa in such a small town. Over the next few years, the ex-priest fell into dire financial straits. Whatever money had been sustaining him before suddenly ran out. He took out a loan in 1913, which he failed to repay before his death in 1917. Saunier didn't leave behind any family, but was survived by his friend and housekeeper, Madame de Narnu. After Saunier's death, de Narnu took up residence with a local businessman, Noel Corbu. Over the next three decades, she consistently hinted to Corbu that she would pass the location of Saunier's treasure to him. But despite his begging, she never revealed the secret. In 1953, she was struck by a sudden stroke and rendered mute. She died soon after. It's a compelling story. To this day, no one knows for sure how Saunier made his money or what the ancient scrolls he found contained. The most common explanation that doesn't involve the Priory of Sion is that Saunier was running a kind of a charity scam, trafficking the mass. Well, mass trafficking was a common phenomenon at the time, where a priest would ask for money by letter in exchange for giving mass. The faithful would essentially mail money to the priest to support his religious activities. This was not technically illegal. The problem was when priests accepted money for masses they never actually gave. In Saunier's case, he accepted over 100,000 francs for hosting non-existent masses. We know this because he kept assiduous records of his activity. He needed to in order to keep track of the prodigious amount of requests he received. It's true that Saunier trafficked the mass. But according to his own records, the money he received from this scheme accounted for only one-fifth of his income. Despite decades of research into the matter, there's no hard answer for how he earned the rest of his money. He likely received it in the form of gifts from wealthy patrons, some of whom he regularly entertained at his villa. Well, this makes sense, but is only an educated guess and it does not fully explain how he made his wealthy contacts. 
The most ardent supporters of the Priory of Sion conspiracy have an explanation. They believe that the scrolls Sonier uncovered contained evidence of the Priory's existence. This theory was first put forward by Gérard Dusset, who published the book, The Gold of Rennes, or The Strange Life of Berger Saunier, priest of Rennes-le-Château in France in 1967. The book was wildly popular. Dusset claimed to have found copies of the ancient scrolls Saunier discovered. When read carefully, he noticed a secret message in the scrolls which hinted at the existence of the Priory of Sion. Unfortunately, the alleged copies of the scrolls were fake. In fact, it turned out that every source which mentioned the Priory of Sion was phony, including the dossier found in the National Library of France in 1967. All of these supposed historical documents, it was revealed, were forged and planted in the library by Desed and his uncredited co-author, Pierre Plantard. The dossier, as we discussed earlier, is a strange collection of information, including false genealogies, personal letters, and details about obscure church orders. It's not immediately clear what its purpose was or why anyone would go through the trouble of forging so many documents. For that, we turn to Pierre Plantard. He is widely regarded to be the mastermind behind the Priory of Sion the architect of an enormous hoax designed solely for his personal enrichment. Pierre Plantard was born on March 18, 1920. His father was a butler and his mother was a concierge. From the beginning, he had big dreams and a talent for persuading others to join him. Plantard was raised Catholic and grew up heavily involved with the church. In 1937, when he was 17, Plantard became a sacristan in charge of caring for the sacred altar and vessels used for communion. He took his role seriously. He was so devoted to the church that he often spoke of his dreams for all of Europe to be united under a holy king who would rule over both the continent and the Vatican. At the time, the socialist Leon Blum was prime minister of France. Plantar was a proponent of a strong fascist government. He despised socialism and especially distrusted Bloom because he was Jewish. For the rest of his life, anti-Semitism would be central to Plantar's political and philosophical beliefs. To combat socialist policies Plantar viewed as harmful, he created a nationalist fascist organization known as the French Union in 1937. The organization was short-lived. In May of 1940, Germany invaded and occupied France. A year after that, at the age of 21, Plantard created the French National Renewal, a similar group. Without a formal introduction, he offered to use his organization to help the French government collaborate with the occupying Nazis. Plantar believed France was destined to eventually lead his dream pan-European Catholic government through ultra-religious and fascist policies. The French collaborationist government never responded to his offer, however, and his second organization was dissolved like the first. Still, Plantar didn't give up. In 1942, he formed the Alpha Gallet, another anti-Semitic, anti-Protestant group. 
In later years, Plantar would enormously inflate the size and importance of the Alpha Gallet, but a contemporary police report stated that the organization had less than 50 members. A CBS 60 Minutes documentary filmed in 2006 uncovered evidence suggesting there were only four committed members. Well, this group disbanded just like all of Plantar's others. After the war, he got a job making architectural drawings. In 1953, at the age of 33, he served six months in jail for fraud. And the details of his conviction are unknown, but there is evidence to suggest he had been selling forged degrees from obscure church orders. Despite his conviction, Plantar remained undiscouraged. Three years later, he tried one more time to create a lasting religious organization. He called it the Priory of Sion, named after a small mountain, the Montagna di Sion, near the group's headquarters. The original goal of the group was to promote low-cost housing developments in the town of Anmas. As was typical of Plantar's organizations, the actual activities of the group were minuscule. In contrast to its mundane actions, the supposed end goal of the group was to re-establish a chivalrous society in France. How that was to be accomplished, or how it related to the day-to-day activities of the organization, was never clear. The group floundered as usual, impacted by troubles in Plantar's personal life. By the end of 1956, the organization was defunct. Plantar switched gears again. This time, he moved to Paris and began eking out a living as a fortune teller. It was a tough time for Plantar. He languished in the poorer districts of Paris, reading fortunes for a pittance and feeling more and more helpless. He had always felt destined for something great, and yet he was practically living on the street. For years, he racked his brain for a way out of his predicament. A plan came to him in 1962, after he read a book by Robert Charroux entitled Trésor du Monde, or Treasures of the World. The book included the story of Saunière and the legendary treasure hidden in his church in Rennes-le-Château. The idea of a lost treasure greatly appealed to Plantar. Drawing on his years of experience in conning people and forging documents, Plantar was inspired to revive his old Priory of Sion, this time under a very different guise. Coming next, Plantar takes the Priory of Sion to new heights. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Now back to the story. In 1962, con artist Pierre Plantard read the story of the treasure of Rennes-le-Chateau and was fascinated. He decided to expand upon the existing legends to connect his old organization, the Priory of Sion, with the story of the lucky priest, Beranger Saunier. Plantar's ultimate goal with this scheme was to recruit influential men across France into his order and use their influence to elevate himself. To give himself an air of legitimacy and ensure leadership of the group would remain in his hands, he started claiming to be descended from royalty. He told people he was the true heir of the Merovingian dynasty. Nostradamus, a 16th century French clairvoyant, had predicted a great king would arrive in the 20th century to rule Europe. Plantar wanted to position himself as the true Catholic king of France and one day fulfill the prophecy. So by 1964, he was proclaiming that King Dagobert II, a Merovingian king killed in the year 679, was his long-lost ancestor. Plantar was attracted to the Merovingians because they were religious and ruled over the largest areas of Western Europe after the decline of the Roman Empire. He felt this put him in the ideal position to claim to be the destined king of France. Plantar recruited his friend, the author and surrealist Philippe de Charizet, to forge false genealogies and letters on the Priory of Sion. As a connoisseur of Catholic history and a one-time forger of church degrees, Plantar had noticed a similarity in the name of his organization and an obscure church order, the Abbey of Sion. As such, he had Cherise connect the Priory of Sion to the historic Abbey of Sion. He wanted the documents to claim the Priory was founded around the end of the First Crusade, because he felt the invasion of Jerusalem would be the most likely time for an order to discover secret biblical artifacts. The history of the organization, according to these documents, reported that the Priory of Sion was founded in either 1090 or 1099 in Jerusalem. The next important document to compile was a fake Merovingian genealogy which insinuated Plantar was the latest in the royal bloodline. For this, Plantar and Cherise meticulously researched the history of the dynasty and came up with a 13-page family tree which appeared to plausibly corroborate Plantar's claims. The duo also included a number of forged personal letters from 20th century individuals who reportedly caught on to the existence of the secret society. But by far the most incredible document in the dossier was the alleged list of grand masters of the Priory of Sion. Among its alleged distinguished members were Nicholas Flamel, Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton, Victor Hugo, and Claude Debussy. When it was all over, Plantar had created a church order from whole cloth. It was a far cry from the original Priory of Sion he had founded to advocate for affordable housing. 
Plantar and the forger de Cherisay hid the documents in the National Library of France in Paris. The next step of the plan was for the documents to be found by Plantar, along with his friend, the author Gerard de Sed. Then the dossier would serve as the foundation for de Sed's newest book. Apparently, it really was that simple. In 1967, Pierre Plantard and Gérard de Sède published The Gold of Rennes, or The Strange Life of Berenger Saunière, priest of Rennes-le-Château. It was a huge success. Word of mouth spread the story of the Priory of Sion throughout France. The book was so successful, it was released as a paperback two years later. Among the avid followers of the conspiracy was Henry Lincoln, a British actor and screenwriter who wrote for Doctor Who and often presented documentaries on the BBC. Lincoln was particularly interested in the copies of Saunier's ancient parchments, which were included in de Sede's book. After meticulous scrutiny, Lincoln found that certain letters in the parchment were raised a millimeter above the rest of the text on their respective lines. When he isolated those letters, they formed a sentence in Latin. It translated to, To Dagobert II, king, and to Sion belongs this treasure, and he is there dead. Lincoln felt he'd made a monumental discovery. He got into contact with Plantaire and de Sede, who encouraged his research. This was exactly what they had been hoping for. They had purposely left clues in the forged parchments for others to find and interpret. They fed Lincoln tips about the parchments, leading him to other coded messages. For example, on the second parchment, lines broke in odd places, sometimes in the middle of words. With Plantar's prodding, Lincoln soon noticed that the word scion was spelled out vertically on the ends of the line breaks. Lincoln was hooked. Throughout 1970, he spent time forming theories of his own, which paralleled and sometimes exceeded the insinuations made in Plantar and de Sede's book. After an enormous amount of personal research, Lincoln wrote up his theories in documentary format and pitched the story to the BBC. The network was intrigued. It would be the first time the British world was exposed to the story of Rennes-le-Château. The documentary, The Lost Treasure of Jerusalem, aired in 1972. The show was a big hit. English audiences had limited context for many of Lincoln's theories, and mere speculation was presented as settled fact. But that was just the beginning of how the theory would balloon. Plantar and de Sede had only hinted at the existence of a secret priory of Sion, with little speculation as to its purpose. It was Lincoln, along with fellow conspiracy theorists Michael Bygent and Richard Lee, who gave the organization a hypothetical reason for existing. In 1982, the trio published the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which made extensive use of the forged parchments to prop up the theory of Jesus' secret bloodline. It seems they were unaware of the controversy surrounding the authenticity of the French dossier. Their theories were exhaustively debunked by scholars at the time of the book's publication, but that didn't stop it from gaining widespread popularity. 
Holy Blood, Holy Grail even inspired the plot of the novel The Da Vinci Code, published in 2003. Pierre Plantard continued to make false claims that he was the true king of France until 1993, when he was taken to court for implicating some French government officials in his conspiracy. There, he confessed under oath to making up everything about the Priory of Sion. With that in mind, we have to rate the conspiracy of the Priory of Sion a 1 out of 10. Some of the theory's claims are intriguing, but all of the evidence traces back to a simple money-making con. The only Priory of Sion that ever existed was a small and short-lived group founded by Pierre Plantard in the 1950s. Well, this one may be easily debunked, but the theories about the Holy Grail only get wilder from here. The next two conspiracies we'll briefly touch on are pretty out there. The first extends the theory of Jesus' bloodline even further than Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Supporters of this theory believe that the so-called Holy Bloodline doesn't begin with Jesus. It goes back to Adam and Eve, who were allegedly real residents of ancient Mesopotamia. And the problem with this theory is that it relies on even grander speculation than the previous one. Its supporters have trouble agreeing on exactly when or where Adam and Eve entered human history. Some believe Adam and Eve were the first Homo sapiens, while others believe they were merely two citizens among many in the prehistoric society. The key evidence comes from historic attempts to synthesize the creation story of the Bible with creation stories from other cultures, especially that of ancient Mesopotamia. According to the theory, the Mesopotamian gods, Enki and Enlil, were not gods, but rather real kings. Enki and Enlil allegedly believed that Adam and Eve possessed the necessary traits to rule the human race. So the kings forcibly bred the pair together to create a new royal bloodline. From there, the theory is linked to the biblical story of Cain, the son of Adam and Eve. Biblical evidence is used to advance the royal bloodline all the way to King David and from there to Jesus and his alleged descendants. Some supporters cement the connection by claiming that the Sumerian word for Cain is graal, which sounds like grail. Unfortunately, there's not much substance to the idea. As a fusion of biblical stories and ancient Mesopotamian stories, the logic certainly tracks, but there don't seem to be any proven facts thrown into the mix. We give this theory a 1 out of 10. Our next out there conspiracy theory is closely related to the last one. It contends that the ancient gods known as the Anunnaki, of which Enki and Enlil were members, were actually extraterrestrials. Supposedly, the Anunnaki genetically engineered humans to work for them as slaves. But before the Anunnaki could completely colonize the planet, Noah's great flood forced them to leave Earth. For an unspecified reason, the Anunnaki did not return after the water receded, but they did leave behind human-alien hybrids known as the Nephilim to rule humanity. Among the Nephilim are King David, Jesus Christ, and his descendants, the Holy Grail. 
a very similar story to the last one, but with the addition of aliens. In our opinion, that doesn't make it any more believable. Like the previous theory, its proponents often take scraps of ancient texts out of context and inflate their importance to justify their bizarre conclusions. Modern historians and scholars who study ancient Mesopotamia universally reject all variations of this theory. We give it a one out of 10 as well. There are countless conspiracy theories about Jesus's life and the early Catholic church. It's easy to see why, after thousands of years, there are many questions that don't have airtight answers. Overall, we do not believe there's sufficient evidence that Jesus Christ was married or had a child. However, there's no evidence to explicitly disprove it either. And unless a new set of 2,000-year-old documents are unearthed, this may be a question for theologians to argue over for the rest of human history. But we can say that if Jesus did have children, his descendants are probably not being protected today by a secret society, and definitely not one called the Priory of Sion. We also find little reason to believe Jesus Christ was an extraterrestrial. While the theories we discussed today may not be very well supported, anything is possible when it comes to something so long ago and something so important to religious history. There may be more that hasn't been revealed to the public, and perhaps it never will be. In the meanwhile, we'll keep our eyes open for the world's conspiracies, coincidences, and most complicated stories. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. And we'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Terrell Wells and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.